Hi and welcome to the Psyche Podcast where we discuss all things mindset, mental well-being and living your best life. I'm your host Hannah and I'm a mindset and mental well-being coach and founder of Psyche Coaching. Welcome and we hope you enjoy the show. Hi friends, welcome back. Hope you are doing good and I really hope that you enjoyed Monday's conversation with Marsha. I know I've definitely been thinking about my self-care generally um, in January but especially after that conversation. Um, I think it's really important and one of the things I've been noticing for myself uh, is that actually if I want to show up on the podcast, uh, in my coaching, in my volunteering, uh, in my life generally the way I want to, um, it's something that is essential. <laughs> it's not just a nice to have, it's um, really important. So yeah, so I've, I've been really prioritising my self-care. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. And um, we're switching up a little bit with this episode. Um, I mentioned at the end of Monday that this is maybe a slightly heavier conversation, although I had a really, um, I really enjoyed my conversation with Sam. Um, but I do want to offer um, a disclaimer, a kind of content trigger warning um, at the beginning that we are discussing uh, sexual abuse in this conversation and suicide um, and I don't normally uh, tend to introduce guests before the interview I, I quite like allowing guests to introduce themselves and, and the things that they see are most important uh, about themselves that they want to share um, but Sam is uh, coming on and sharing his brother's story of being uh, sexually assaulted um, by someone from the church um, and and actually one of the things with guests that come on I like to try and be present and curious and I don't tend to overly research people that come on uh, so it led to a faux pas on uh, on my part uh, where I asked Sam how his brother is now and, uh, and sadly uh, Sam's brother then uh, went on to uh, to complete suicide as a result of his experiences so Sam is sharing his brother's story he's talking about the book that he has written about his brother's experience um, and that's the kind of level that we're, we're getting into so we do touch on those topics we we do explore those um, but we're also talking about the, the the book and the process of writing that so just as um, for yourself kind of checking in how you are in yourself at the moment and whether this their topics that, that are maybe triggering for you to kind of check in with yourself. But it's a really important, um, important conversation to be having, which is one of the things that we're about here. So with all that, let's dive into this conversation with Sam. Hi, everyone, and I'm really happy to welcome Sam to the podcast this week. So Sam, welcome. And if you could tell us a little bit about you, that would be great. Sure. Thanks, Hannah, for having me on. Um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Um, I recently uh, published a book, uh, The Murder of Innocence, uh, The Truth About Sexual Abuse in the Catholic Church, uh, that articulates uh, my brother's story of being uh, sexually abused uh, as an early um, teenager or preteen uh, by a priest who got close to our family after our father died. Um, and so the book really captures the essence of his story, as well as the, the aspects that went along uh, with his abuse and story, and to a large extent, um, my own story. Um, yeah, and um, sexual abuse isn't something we've really covered in, in much detail on the podcast before. We've talked about other uh, types of abuse. And so uh, one of the things that'd be interesting to talk about, if you're able to, is, is some of the kind of impacts uh, of that. Um, first, how, how is your brother now? Sure. So my brother passed away in 2010, um, rather uh, tragically. So he died by suicide. Um, Sorry. You know, one of the big aspects of uh, child sexual abuse is that a lot of times the victims don't come forward for a long period of time. Um, and so he was abused from 19... 81 to 84, uh, during that multi-year period, he was shamed into silence, never said anything um, until about 1993 or 94, uh, when the priest was outed in uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is where we grew up. Um, and at that time, he had mentioned 
uh, just within the family um, that what we were hearing in the news about Dorsch, um, uh, the priest who had abused him, was true. Um, but then kind of from there, he, he never said anything publicly or was part of you know, one of the, the lawsuits uh, that related uh, to that particular uh, pedophile priest. Um, and he, you know, he went on about kind of living his life or trying to live his life. He was very successful, the first in our family to go to college, went to the University of Pennsylvania, um, and then was a, a VP on Madison Avenue um, in New York. But, you know, all the while he, you know, had complex PTSD um, and was kind of working through that, you know, to a large extent on his own. But his, you know, his flashbacks over time became more and more intense. Um, so things to some extent got worse versus better as time went on, um, which might seem a little counterintuitive, but um, that, that was the case in his situation and can be with, with sexual abuse. And so his, his first suicide attempt was in 2008, and it's at that time that, you know, he really started to share all of the scars that he was dealing with, um, you know, more within the family, as well as with the Diocese of Pittsburgh. Um, and that really started a, you know, a two-year um, battle with the church to try to get him uh, the help that he needed. Um, so, yeah, that big aspect of child sexual abuse where there's shame and, you know, there can be a delayed um, or, and oftentimes is a delayed reaction, um, is a very important, um, aspect. Yes. And, uh, sorry, um, yeah, to, to hear about, um, your, your brother passing away. And I think it's quite fitting that we're recording this in the month that's World Suicide Prevention, uh, or Awareness Month. Um, and one of the things that we're doing as part of the podcast is having a discussion panel around suicide, because it's one of those subjects that is still, really taboo and, and stigma and people feel uncomfortable talking about. So thank you for sharing um, sure. that story. Um, and I guess it, 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 as you say, it, it shows that impact and that although it might seem counterintuitive that, that things are getting worse, I suppose that if you are starting to talk about something that you've tried to keep buried for so long, then you're sort of reliving that trauma and going back through it. And actually it can then become more challenging because you're kind of actually facing facing it yes. rather than yeah yes yeah there's definitely a period of turmoil um as you're kind of working through that to try to get to you know the other side or a different place with everything yeah and um are there there uh, obviously we, that's some of the the impacts of sexual abuse on uh, you know and you mentioned about a complex ptsd I wonder if you can speak uh, any more about that and about, you know, the, the impact that can have on someone and the impact of kind of carrying that, that shame. And so, you know, with my brother, he always, um, you know, would tell me that he felt dirty, um, that, you know, he, he felt scarred and a sense of, you know, shame. And, you know, I would always say to him, you know, you were 10 years old when this started, right. The, um, you know, the priest got close to our family. Um, and, you know, the only person with shame here should be the, you know, the abuser for, for what he did and, you know, over a multi-year period. And, you know, my brother felt violated, um, you know, in turn, our family felt violated. So, you know, I'm the youngest of my, uh, of, uh, of five uh, within the family. Uh, my brother was uh, second youngest. Um, uh, so we were very close, but, you know, with this all happening, right. Um, you know, a big impact within the family in terms of trying to process it. You know, this is someone who came to our house once or twice a month for Sunday dinner. And so, you know, they're, um, you feel betrayed, especially those probably around the, the, the victim when they find out, cause you know, this was someone you know, absent knowing the evil that he was doing, I looked up to. So, you know, I had to kind of process that myself, um, you know, kind of years after um, kind of looking back, right? And you, you wish you would have known or you wish you would have seen something in terms of being a, a loved one of the victim. But um, for my brother, it was always as if he was carrying this huge, heavy 
weight on his back because of how you know graphical the abuse was and the seriousness of the um, abuse, the intensity of it, the duration of it, um, and so just you know it it never goes. That, that's the other thing he said is that you know it never goes away, um, and he felt like you know the life he was supposed to have lived was stolen from him because he had that baggage, you know, for so long in his, his life. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And that hints at the kind of complexity of the, the emotions that are, that are being experienced, the, the kind of the shame, the guilt, the, the feeling dirty, and then also that anger um, about, yeah, as you said, having the life that was meant for him being stolen from that experience because it, has a massive impact uh, as we said with the trauma and and also um you mentioned about your family and what you what you were feeling um and i guess there's uh, maybe guilt maybe shame is something that other people around uh, the person maybe experience and so uh, after after his suicide what what sort of happened then and what led you to writing the book and sharing his story sure well you know there was so much injustice done to him throughout his life um, that I thought I had to tell his story. Plus, he was working on writing a book himself. So the first um, section of the book, the first several chapters are actually his unedited uh, writings that he had amounted before he passed away. Um, but, you know, he was violated in the early 1980s. This was a a priest that the diocese knew about and had moved around, right? So, you know, had kept it secret. Then when, you know, he came forward in 2008, they said that he, uh, or that they were going to right the wrongs of the past. Um, and so they, you know, paid uh, for some of his mental health care, but he had, a, he had a second suicide attempt in 2009 where, you know, outpatient treatment wasn't going to do the trick you know, he really needed, you know, a full-time residential, you know, retreat type setting. Um, and so they initially agreed to pay for that, but then complained that it was too expensive. And it became this rush of, hey, you know, we can't pay this forever. When are you going to be finished? Um, you know, all the while, they continued to pay for Dorsch, the perpetrator, because he retired himself from the ministry. Um, even though he was a convicted um, child molester. Um, so, you know, he shifted to another treatment center that was less expensive that they were paying for. But then uh, March, uh, April of 2010, they sent him a full and final release that, you know, if he wanted another couple months of care, he had to sign it. And that would be the last dollar that they would ever give. Um, and, you know, the head of his treatment plan at Austin Riggs, which is a um, mental health care facility in uh, Massachusetts here in the U.S. Um, you know, his lead doctor said, you know, this really isn't the time to be doing this. You're stressing him out further. And so that was the, the final trigger. Um, and he uh, died by suicide May 4th of 2010. Um, so, you know, immediately after his death, um, you know, given everything that had happened, um, we brought a wrongful death suit against the Diocese of Pittsburgh, um, but because of their, you know, lobbying efforts and the statute of limitations, which is another, you know, big factor in child sex abuse because of that delay in recognizing what happened or wanting to articulate it, you know, that was the only angle that we had, but it, you know, it ended up getting denied in terms of proceeding as a, a case or going to trial. Um, you know, so for me, the, you know, the first few years, um, you know, there was a lot of that feeling of anger over everything that happened. Um, you know, my brother was my best friend. You know, we were closest in the family, you know, only uh, four years apart. Uh, and then the other siblings were kind of born three years in a row. And there was a three-year gap between them and Michael. But, you know, I always looked up to my, my brother and, um, you know, probably to you know, work through my own, you know, feelings and mental health. Um, you know, I wanted to bring everything together in terms of his writings, um, the interplay with the church, but then also the different dimensions within the family. So, you know, my perspectives are in the book. My sister, Frances, 
um, uh, wrote a, a, a chapter. My brother Paul uh, wrote a chapter. Um, and so it's, it's really trying to look at that multidimensional view of all the ingredients that can go into um, you know, creating the environment where a pedophile might thrive. So, you know, for me, the, the book, you know, it was a tough journey. It, um, you know, took almost 10 years. I, I uh, kind of gave myself the 10 year limit and uh, got it done a few months early, but, um, you know, it was definitely a journey in terms of, you know, sorting through everything. Another big aspect of the book is, um, you know, the, there are some medical records included uh, given that we had access to those as part of um, you know the the lawsuit in terms of discovery, and so it's to give you know everyone you know who reads it a full view into you know everything that's happening both with the victim, um, with victims' families and their loved ones, um, and just everything that uh, you know goes along with it because as as you said it is a very complex uh, situation. Yeah, and it sounds like, and this is, I guess, me with my sort of professional head on, because I'm sort of a trainee counsellor type person. It sounds like uh, something that for people in my position would be a, a great book to read to to really try, you know, and, and I don't think it's ever possible to completely understand that experience if, if you haven't been through it, but to try and appreciate what might be going on for all uh, the, the different players in, in the situation. So... Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to uh, be checking it out and kind of recommending it for, for other people. And I think, you know, it's, it's an important story to share um, because it's the kind of thing that's often hushed, hushed up yes. and that people uh, for various reasons don't want to talk about because it's so personal to them or on the other side, uh, you know, for the church don't want to talk about because of the, uh, the impact on them. And would you say that your attitude towards the church has changed in the time that it took you to write the book? Um, I, I would say it changed before I started writing the book, given everything, you know, I saw, you know, growing up as a, a Catholic, you're taught certain things and, you know, you, you kind of believe in the church, but then, you know, I kind of got to see the evil side of it, which kind of, you know, undid, um, you know, everything I was taught, which kind of comparing them, you know, everything that you're taught isn't necessarily true. Um, and so for, you know, an institution that's supposed to be a moral authority to have acted the way they did in my brother's case and in so many other victims' cases, um, you know, really turned me, you know, away from it. So, you know, I'm not a practicing um, Catholic. Um, you know, I still am spiritual. You'll see in my writings that, um, you know, I kind of look at, you know, spiritual connections um, uh, and kind of believe in a bigger purpose. But, um, you know, given everything that happened, you know, organized religion in general, I, I looked at maybe some other churches or denominations, but um, I don't know, it just, it, maybe they seem too close, but it's, you know, it's very structured where it's, you know, this top down and, um, you know, I'm, I'm more of a free thinker, you know, may, maybe the church that I found uh, most appealing out of all the different ones I visited was, um, I think it's the universal church, which is, you know, there's no altar, it's kind of open, the, um, you know, ministers are um, you know, male, female, um, you know, it's a diverse audience, diverse leaders, um, you know, the Catholic church to this day still doesn't allow you know, women to be priests. Um, so, uh, yeah, it yeah. turned me, turned me away from, uh, Catholicism. Yeah. And I guess that, that church you just mentioned it more of a kind of, um, equal footing, less of that hierarchy. So, um, yeah, kind of turned off from that, you know, that setting of the Catholic church and the hierarchy and then, you know, um, looking at other options, but I think, yeah, I, I think, when we have experiences where our trust in a certain organization, it could be religion, it could be a company, it could be um, whatever. Once that's gone, it can be really difficult then to move past that. And when even similar types of organizations kind of like tainted, there's that sort of fear of, um, 
of trusting in another organization in that way um, in case something similar happens. So what was the, uh, the reception to your book like when it, when it came out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, and you know, there's, um, there, there is so much kind of personal, um, you know, deep complicated subjects in the book that, um, you know, even though I had worked on it for so long, there's still that kind of moment of truth when you officially publish it. Um, and so you, you do, or I did kind of worry, you know, how will it be perceived and, you know, what will people think? Um, and all of the notes that I've received have been, you know, incredibly positive and in turn have, um, you know, they inspire me because, you know, they get the book. Um, I've had a lot of people uh, write me and say that, you know, it's so engaging that they read it in one day because they couldn't put it down. Um, and the, even though it's a, um, you know, it, it is, you know, a heavy topic, um, that how it's written, um, is engaging. And so, um, you know, people, you know, have thanked me for telling his story. Um, you know, at times they said, you know, I, I imagine that was very, you know, tough for you to do. Um, and so they kind of admire my determination and courage to get through all of it. Um, you know, which is, uh, meant a lot to me. Um, so, uh, very, very positive receptions. Um, I'm, I'm proud of all my uh, reviews on Amazon. They're all five-star, uh, reviews, um, uh, which, uh, and, you know, they're from various readers. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just happy to see that people have responded well and, uh, that they get it and that, um, you know, the important thing for me with the book was, um, you had mentioned it uh, a little earlier in one of your comments um, that, you know, a lot of times people don't want to talk about it. And, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, you know, when my children ask about Uncle Michael or their children ask about their great uncle Michael, you know, I don't want things to get lost and, oh, you know, it's kind of swept under the rug. And so I thought that would, you know, totally dishonor his legacy. Um, and so there, you know, there are a lot of great things about his life. Um, you know, he was a great friend to so many. Uh, that's another aspect of the book. There are some of his friends' writings in there um, in terms of, you know, he was such an energetic, outgoing, you know, loving person, very inspiring, um, that, uh, um, you know, it was important uh, to document all of that. And, um, you know, that comes to life in the book and uh, has, has been well-received. And it, it sounds like it's a great way of, of honoring him, remembering him, giving him a voice and uh, allowing his story to be shared and to be heard. Um, were you concerned about any pushback at all um, from the church or anything like that? Or was that not, you didn't care <laughs> about it? So. Uh, I, I didn't care. I, you know, I probably thought about the likelihood of that a little bit, but given, unfortunately, how prevalent the topic has been and that, you know, it's, unfortunately, it's not a new topic, um, even though obviously my brother's story is unique to his own, but um, uh, in terms of trying to quiet me, um, you know, the, the main defense of anything in there about them is that it's true. Um, and so, you know, you're allowed to write the, the truth. Um, and so the, you know, the documents, the, the communication with them is actually their own unaltered responses. It shows a lot of their self-righteousness um, for people to see the full and final releases in there, you know, word for word that they sent it to us. And so, and the, I mentioned this in the book, um, there is that fear that the church tries to instill in people. My mom grew up in a, a Catholic orphanage the first seven years of her life in Italy before she was adopted and moved to the States about a year and a half later. Um, but we, when we sued the Diocese of Pittsburgh a few months after my brother passed away, um, we were going into a press conference and you know, I, I was the lead spokesperson for the family um, along with the attorney. Um, but my mom pulled me aside and she said, well, um, you know, should we be doing this? And I, I, I knew exactly where she was going. Um, and I said, well, you know, wh what do you mean? I said, you know, uh, we're, we're about to, she's like, well, are they going to hurt us? And I said, mom, I said, 
you know, I said, the hurt's already been done. I said, you know, and so, you know, after that press conference and that it was public in Pittsburgh because it, you know, it was covered on the local news, um, you know, at that point, it, it kind of broke down that barrier. And then at that time, you know, back to how do people respond, you know, our friends and extended family in Pittsburgh, you know, all were incredibly supportive. Um, uh, and so, you know, I'm sure there were, you know, uh, other, you know, Catholics who maybe weren't supportive and then just didn't say anything or chose to ignore it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it broke down that element by, you know, it, it kind of turned it around, it outed them. And, and that was the other thing I felt like I had to tell her, kind of what I told Michael sometimes is we, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, you know, we're, we're not in the, the wrong here. I guess it shows that that shame and, and how it can be so ingrained to feel it's, it's a natural response sometimes. And even, you know, uh, the, the people around the victim to have that response and to, as you said, to think about who it should really belong to. Um, and I guess that um, writing the book and sharing his story and in some way, as you said, just putting the truth out there you've got that, well, this, this is true. It's not like we're, we're making something up to just try and, um, right. you know, slander the church. You've got that, you know, it's the truth and you want to, to get his story out. And um, yeah, thank you for, for sharing it with the world. Sure. And, um, and I think it's something that maybe will help other people who've been through a similar experience just to, I don't know, to, I think sometimes it can help to kind of, where am I going with this point? <laughs> Um, but to hear stories that are, that are similar, so whether there are people who have also lost uh, someone who has been through this experience, or to to kind of see it and and to know that it's not their shame to hold, you know, I think I think that's the power of having these stories and having these conversations um, for for helping to change, you know, perspectives and, and change understanding. If that makes sense. Yeah, I totally I totally agree. Um... And I, yeah, that's another dimension of the book is, you know, to the extent that it helps others going through similar th things and they can learn from it and, uh, you know, prevent the outcome um, uh, that ended up happening uh, with my brother. Um, you know, we can all be, um, you know, smarter for having learned his, his story. Yeah, absolutely. And, th and thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing that uh, with us. Um, and it feels strange to move on to my first set question um, because I feel we've talked about quite a, quite a heavy topic. Um, but my first question is about joy. Um, and so, um, and I'm sure when you, when you think of your brother that you, that you have lots of joyful memories there that you think of, but what, what brings you joy in your life? That's the first question I ask everyone uh, that comes on. Um, so, um... I first thought of, you know, joy relating to my brother, but um, at the last part, and I'll go more into that, but at the last part, you know, immediate joy comes from, you know, my children and my family, um, uh, my wife as well. Uh, we have a 15-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. Um, and it's, you know, it's great to, um, you know, see them grow up and to be a positive presence uh, for them. Um, in a, a few months, we're going to be getting a uh, English cream golden retriever. Um, so we're excited about that, but that's, um, uh, been something we've all rallied behind. Um, it seems as if, uh, a lot of people are getting dogs given the, uh, COVID-19, uh, pandemic because you have time to, uh, uh, raise them and train them. Um, you know, with, with my brother, um, uh, I enjoy running. So I've, I've completed 52 marathons. I've hit 48 states in the U S. Um, I only had or only have two states left. I was going to complete it uh, this year, but um, uh, COVID-19 delayed that at least till next year um, to getting to the, the states I need to get to. Um, but, you know, when I run, when I run, as well as when I run marathons, I typically feel very connected to my brother. And there's a sense of, you know, joy in terms of, you know, I like to imagine him smiling down on the uh, things that I am doing, um, even, you know, with the book, um, you know, I kind of imagined him, you know, smiling down and uh, being proud of me. Um, so that, that brings me uh, joy as well to know that, 
um, you know, I saw it through um, and, you know, have done what I could to continue to have his voice uh, be heard. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. And then uh, my next question is what makes life meaningful for you? Um, I would go back to my, my family. I, um, you know, find a lot of meaning in uh, family, both my immediate family that I told you about, uh, but still my, you know, my mom, uh, my brother, Paul in Pittsburgh, uh, my sisters and their, um, families, uh, the nieces and nephews. Um, and then my, uh, uh, wife's family. Uh, we live close to them here in Atlanta. And so, you know, it's about holding each other close. You know, I think being through um, the the tragedy uh, that we went through with my brother, um, you know, you, you realize how valuable life is and the time that you have together. Um, and so whether that's vacations together or, you know, just a visit coming over for a meal or the holidays, um, you know, it makes you value those things even more. Um, and, you know, for me, kind of meaning ultimately becomes uh, about legacy, right? So when you're gone, you know, do people remember you for, you know, how you made them feel, what you enabled them to do? Um, and so that, that's how I find meaning. Awesome. Thank you for that. And I, and I think that's also a, a great point about really kind of appreciating what we have and, and making the most of the people around us. And um, because I think sometimes we can take it all for granted, can't we? And yes. And then it, and then it can take, um, you know, a, a tragic uh, event to just bring it into sharp focus for us that actually the amazing things that we've got around us, the people that we have. So yeah, thank you for, for that reminder. Um, so my next two questions are kind of overarching uh, topic if you like for the podcast is mental well-being and so anything but yes. pretty much everything fits under that so it's pretty much fair game um but my first question around this is what does mental wellness mean to you um so i i would the first word that comes to mind is balance um and feeling healthy about yourself mentally physically uh, where no one emotion is right or wrong but you know can you process it um can you feel it, but ultimately not um, have any one emotion or mood maybe overshadow uh, who you are? Um, and so for me, you know, going through such, you know, a dark you know, subject such as this, such as this and uh, processing it, you know, depression, anxiety, um, you know, are things you have to, you know, guard against or talk through um, with a, a therapist or coach. Um, and I think, you know, having the courage to, you know, talk through your feelings, because I do think, you know, talk therapy is a very important element of mental health, because it, you know, it helps you, you know, kind of put everything on the table and, you know, sort it out and try to make sense of it um, and kind of, you know, put yourself back together or, you know, put yourself back together in a way that you continue to grow and evolve, thereby achieve that you know, that, that balance where, um, you know, you are healthy, you're happy, um, you know, to get up each day. Uh, there may be things that come up or get you down, um, you know, but you can work through those and kind of get back to, you know, whatever um, balance looks like for you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just want to echo the value of, of therapy and, and talk therapy, because I think, you know, we've, we've talked about shame um, a lot. We've talked about guilt. And actually, when you've got a lot of stuff that you're processing it can feel really difficult talking to family and friends and bringing that up whereas when it's someone who particularly someone that you're paying <laughs> for the privilege of, of, of hearing it that can actually help to to make it easier to share so um yeah thank you totally. for, for kind of reiterating that and then my follow-up question is always how do you look after your own mental well-being so um you know i would say that i've gotten to a, a good place of balance relative to, you know, other periods in terms of, you know, maybe some darker periods. Um, but I think it's, you know, back to talk therapy, I think it's important to maintain an element of that um, to go through the process um, so that, you know, you never kind of, um, you know, drift back in to you know, any one state, but can uh, kind of maintain 
an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And um, yeah, I think continuing to talk about things because um, there's always going to be new stuff that comes up in your life that, you know, maybe you need to, you know, talk through that topic and that still relates to something else that maybe happened either, you know, in my own case coming out of this tragedy or something else. Um, and so, you know, it's a, you know, as I think about that question, I think it's important for people to realize it's an ongoing journey. You don't just, you know, unlike in running where you cross the finish line and uh, it's nice to cross the finish line in a marathon, but um, you know, mental well-being is a lifelong journey. And I think people, you know, you don't just kind of get fixed or fix a certain dimension that you might be going through. Um, it's an ongoing uh, conversation um, that you need to tend to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. And also I, I didn't comment on, uh, but I was very amazed by the number of marathons <laughs> because I am not a natural, run- not a natural runner. It's not my favorite thing. Um, and so the idea of just one marathon <laughs> is amazing, but yeah, 50, which are the two States that you still have to complete? So I have uh, Connecticut and Maine left and, um, they're in the Northeast. So I'd probably have to fly to them and I don't, mm-hmm feel totally comfortable flying just yet with uh, COVID-19. So yeah. I'll probably still do a marathon within driving distance of Atlanta mm-hmm. um, this year because I've done at least one marathon a year since 1998. And then I'll try to hit those two states uh, next year to, to wrap up all 50. And did it start as a challenge to, I'm going to run a marathon in all 50? Or was it like an accidental challenge that you started and then, oh, maybe I'll do all 50? <laughs> So this is a good example of um, Michael's ability to uh, inspire people. So how I got into running, I had first moved to Atlanta in uh, 1998 or late 1997. And, um, you know, I was young, 22, 23. Um, and, um, yeah, I was looking to meet people. And uh, Michael called me one day. He lived in New York. He said, oh, I just, I just learned about um, – the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society um, has a team and training program. So they train you to run a marathon while you raise money for the nonprofit. And then at the end of the training, there's an event destination. So this particular marathon was in Anchorage, Alaska. So the, the first marathon I ever did was Alaska in 1998. So I went to the information session here in Atlanta. You know, was totally inspired, you know, signed up on the spot. Um, and, uh, you know, get back to my apartment, call my brother, you know, tell him. He's like, well, um, he's like, I, I didn't sign up yet. He said, I, you know, he's like 4000 bucks is a lot to raise. You know, do you know how you're going to do that? And I said, yeah. I said, I'll do a letter writing campaign and all this stuff. He's like, well, he's like, I have too much going on right now, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so, so um I ended up doing it. Um, my other brother, Paul, actually in Pittsburgh, he ended up doing it. Um, Paul and I did it again the following year, but um, Michael and I did run a few marathons together. Um, but he he got me interested in running. And then um, I actually met my wife the following year doing the same program. And then, yeah, I had probably been running three, four years and had accidentally kind of covered you know, six, seven states. And then I started reading about these people who've run all 50 states. So I said, well, I'll just make that a goal. Um, and so it's, you know, it's kept me in the game since then, because, you know, you kind of have to always be training or, you know, mm-hmm. be able to ramp up uh, to do it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, for me running, you know, speaking of mental health has been a very important aspect of mental health, because it's really where, you know, I recharge and process things. I, I don't run with headphones. You know, people ask me, well, what do you listen to for two hours? And I kind of say myself, <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you just zone out, but um, uh, that's how I got into it. Yeah. And I mean, that's a fun story of almost, uh, maybe not consciously like tricky into <laughs> signing up, but, um, but um, yeah, absolutely exercise and, and mental health uh, has a massive impact. So I guess having that that thing to focus on the achievement kind of keeps you doing it, but also at the same time, you're getting that mental health boost by continually um, getting out on the, on the road and, and running. So 
Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully soon you'll be able to, well, as soon as safe, uh, get the other two done. And then what, what's, I'm sort of going off track now for my set questions, but what will be the next challenge after you've done all 50 states? What then? Well, so I would like to um, maintain at least doing one marathon a year as long as I can in terms of sort of other sets of marathons to do. Um, I could um, uh, do a couple things. I could try for the continents, which some people have done, but Antarctica, as you might guess, is the toughest one. Um, it's actually partly the toughest one because you just have to actually get there <laughs> to, to do it, which is a challenge in and of itself. Um, but there's also the six majors, um, marathons considered around the world. So um, London, uh, of course, is one of them. Um, uh, Berlin uh, and Tokyo. And then the three others are in the U.S., which I've done, New York, Boston, and Chicago. So, you know, I could do those three other ones to round that out. Uh, and or, you know, I could go north of the U.S. and try to hit the uh, provinces um, uh, in Canada. You've already got ideas <laughs> where you go next. <laughs> yeah. And you're already halfway to the big six. So that seems... Like yes, that's good. probably the immediate one because yeah. I, I only have to do three more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, halfway there. Um, so my next question uh, that I ask everyone to come up that comes on is, can you describe your own mindset? My own mindset. Um, so I used that um, balance word earlier. Um, I guess I um, kind of think of how other people would de uh, describe my mindset. So, um, you know, I, I, I like to have fun. So I like to see, you know, comedy um, in things or um, like at work, I'll uh, imitate certain personalities. Um, you know, people who don't take themselves too seriously. I don't like to take myself too seriously. Yeah, you know, there's probably a disposition to question things, um, especially given all I've been through. So there is that, you mentioned trust earlier. So there probably is a healthy skepticism at times. Um, I can probably be, um, you know, sarcastic as a result. Um, you know, I think of some of my uh, favorite uh, comedians, uh, like George Carlin or Robin Williams. Um, you know, there, there's, you actually have to be pretty intelligent to be a comedian because of the, you know, the, the aspects of it. Um, uh, Richard Pryor's another one um, uh, here in the U.S. That, that goes a while back. But um, so, you know, I, I guess um, uh, when you say mindset, I don't think of mood as much as I do, you know, how do I kind of go about my day and look at things? Um, I tend to be a, a critical thinker, so I'll look at things analytically. Um, which kind of goes back to the questioning. Um, I like to try to understand people's true motivations um, in terms of what angle, you know, they might be coming at things. Again, probably goes back to that, you know, skepticism or, or questioning. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I, I guess, yeah, I value truth and objectivity. And so I would say that's a mindset. Um, you know, professionally, I'm a financial executive, and I've, I've always enjoyed being on the finance side of things because, you know, you, you don't necessarily um, have a dog in the race, right? You can kind of look at things, analyze it, you know, is it a good decision or not, versus, you know, sometimes other functions within a business or organization fall in love with an idea, um, or, it, you know, it might be the sales team or something like that. Um, where it's, you know, they kind of have pride of ownership. Um, but, uh, um, you know, kind of that truth, objectivity, uh, getting to uh, good solutions, um, uh, all goes into my mindset. Yeah, awesome. And when you said um, sarcasm, I just thought that's like standard for, for the UK. <laughs> <laughs> the default approach and i don't know if you listen to any british comedians but like i can think of several and that sarcasm is like their act that's it's their kind of <laughs> so i uh, yeah completely relate to that <laughs> yes yeah awesome uh so my my next question my penultimate question actually uh is mm -hmm. um that i ask every guest that comes on to leave us with one to three kind of top tips of things that they would recommend 
uh, that we try or that we can put in place that are going to have a massive impact in our life. And so you could do general ones, you could tailor them maybe to people who have been or are going through a similar experience um, to what you've been through. It's completely up to you, but do you have a top one to three tips for us? Sure. So, you know, one that we probably haven't talked about yet, uh, I'll call it music and mindfulness. Um, for me, music, you know, I like to find, I have all types of music, but um, I, I like ones with a kind of a lot of bass. Um, Fun uh, is one of the uh, bands that I have um, on my iPod, and they have a song called One Foot. It's, it, if you listen to the song, um, you know, it's, it has horns. The, the lyrics are great. Um, I can actually relate to the lyrics a, a lot, but um, yeah, that it gets me going. So, you know, whether it's in the morning, um, uh, you know, before I do a run on the way to the park, I'll typically drive to the park and then run on trails. Um, you know, I'll kind of use that. It, it kind of pumps me up, gets me going. Um, but at other times, it's, it's a nice reminder to, you know, be uplifting. So I am, maybe if I am getting a little bit of a down mood, you know, I process it, but I kind of go back to something that puts me a little bit more in the center. Um, so I would say having, you know, have a good playlist, you know, whatever works for you. Um, and I, I guess related to that, you know, mindfulness, um, I guess you can make that a second one. Um, but, uh, you know, going through that process of just kind of being and processing, um, and there are tapes or, uh, download on iTunes that, you know, sometimes when I am flying, um, you know, it's a good time to just put on the Bose headphones with the noise canceling and just kind of, um, you know, be with yourself and kind of just give yourself a chance to process. Uh, related to that, I would say um, yoga. We haven't talked about that. I've, um, I do that a few times a week. Uh, it's just about a 25 minute yoga routine. Um, it helps with running. There's a practical aspect, but it also helps with just, um, you know, kind of listening to your, to your body, uh, which, you know, back to having balance. Um, all of those things really encompass taking time for yourself, um, which I think, you know, people need to do in order to stay healthy. Otherwise, you, you kind of get wound up and um, you don't listen to yourself. And then that might have been three, but... Um, you know, back to the, you know, the exercise and having a mental health routine, right? So uh, we talked about talk therapy, but what, what is the routine that you have for maintaining um, mental health? Because, you know, I don't think that happens by accident. So whether that's, you know, reading or the talk therapy or something else, um, you know, I think there needs to, you know, you need to have a, a plan um, so that, uh, you know, that comes to be. Awesome. And they're all great tips and all things that I would absolutely echo. And I was thinking too about my mental health routine, which actually is exercise. I probably do it more for my mental health than physical health. And I listen to music, although quite often I tune out while I'm listening to it, but occasionally just become uh, aware of it. But I also found it interesting that you listen to music before you run to kind of get pumped up, but then not when you run. Um, yeah. This, yes. Yes. That yeah. is, um, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's maybe to get the blood flowing on the way there, but then uh, yeah. I kind of like to, to listen to myself while I'm uh, in the trails. Yeah, but it seems like a yeah, theme that lots of your suggestions are about that tuning into to yourself, like you said, and that's something that quite often comes up on the podcast as being really valuable to be able to listen to ourselves and, and kind of see where we're at. So, yeah, awesome. And so my, my final question is, um, where people can connect with you online, if, uh, if you're open to people connecting with you, where they can Definitely. book. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Unique, which is, I guess, good in the, the world of the internet. Um, uh, so samunglow.com um, uh, is the, uh, my website. Uh, you can find uh, the book there. There's um, uh, a book trailer there, uh, a short very inspirational video about the, the book. Um, there are links to where to purchase the book. It is an, on Amazon as well as a number of other places. And then 
I, I'm always open to connecting with people. If people want to email me, uh, sam at samunglo.com. Uh, my last name is U-N-G-L-O for those listening. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm uh, uh, happy to uh, be connected with people. And then it's on my site, but I, um, you know, my social media presen presence uh, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, um, I'm there as well. Awesome. And we can absolutely link in the show notes so people can find you easily from there as well. Sam, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and for, and for being so open about your story, your, your brother's story and um, for the, the work you're doing, I guess, in this area to kind of honour his memory, but also to kind of raise awareness um, and to kind of challenge uh, these sorts of things that are happening, which absolutely shouldn't be happening. So, yeah, thank you. for. Thank you very much, Hannah. It's a pleasure uh, talking with you today. Thanks again to Sam and my key takeaway from this is really thinking about mental health routines. Um, you know, I love that we got into running and actually, as I mentioned, I have started running. I am about, well, I'm in week two of Couch to 5K, week three, week three of Couch to 5K. So <laughs> I am doing that. I'm right at the beginning. But, you know, my, as I said at the beginning, the self-care for me, it really is a mental health routine. It's really uh, vital. And so my kind of final thought for you is to think for yourself what you're doing for your mental health at the moment, uh, what you're doing to have that outlet if you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed, how you're refueling yourself, how you are processing stuff, just kind of what you've got for yourself. For me, as I've talked about before, exercise um, and therapy is something uh, we talk about therapy as well in this conversation that's really important for me. So that's my final thought to really check in with yourself and see how you're doing and what you are doing for your mental health. Um, that's everything for today. Next week, we are going to hit our 100th episode, which is super exciting. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be a special one yet. Who knows? <laughs> but join us for that. And if you've enjoyed this, please do rate, review and share. It means so much to us to, to just be able to, um, well, we're just honoured really that you're listening to us and hope that you have enjoyed and got something from this conversation today. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Remember, be kind to yourself and I will speak to you on Monday. Take care for now. Bye. Bye.